Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to this series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Figuru. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5, Episode 6, I Believe the Children Are Our Future. Let's get this show on the road. I hate pronouncing the title of this episode so badly. Yeah, I, I never like when you have that hour and our hour. It's like it, it feels you have to force it so much. It just feels weird. Because otherwise it's like our, our future. Our, 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 we're all just seals. <laughs> exactly. So funny story is that I also hate this episode. I think when this episode ended, I had a moment where I said to myself, like, okay, prediction if we never see jesse again which seems very plausible mary hates this episode if we do see <laughs> jesse again it becomes an incredibly plot relevant episode this is going to be one of those like mary loves it because he's such a good kid and there's like a whole thing to him i'm going to take a guess and say you don't like this episode from your previous comment and that is because this storyline doesn't go anywhere and it's a bottle episode isn't it I'm not going to let you spout off your amazing theories. Like, it's, it, is, it is what it is. Jesse never comes back. We never hear from him again. But I do have some thoughts about that uh, to share with you in the long game. I can't wait to get there, but I will definitely now have to include Jesse in my fictional fan fiction that also includes the Rougarou's child who we've lost also. It's not only the, the whole Jesse thing, but it's also like the blatant, like non-consensual sex and pregnancy. Like it's all very icky. And honestly, in this episode, we're just not going to talk about it all that much. The only redeeming factor of this episode was Jesse. And to find out that he was a one-off, I now agree this episode was meh. Shall I recap this blech? Yeah, I'm going to count you down. Three, two, one, blech. <laughs> Brothers start investigating... Some going-ons in town, the first one being a woman who looks like she was attacked by an animal, but it turns out she actually may have done it to herself. How is that possible? Crazy. We have this doctor throughout the entire episode who's very good at just expositioning things, it turns out. We then find out that all of these things seem to be, like, weird rumors or myths we believed as kids coming true, and it's all due to this one kid who has powers, and it then turns out this kid is literally the Antichrist. And their way of trying to stop him was to lie to him. And then the demon shows up and tells him the truth. And then Sam goes, no, no, here's the truth, but better. And the kid's like, yeah, peace, Australia. Bye. Time. I mean, we assume Australia, but that seems really obvious too. Again, because we don't know. I think it's not wrong to assume Australia. I know we dipped into the long game a little bit when uh, we discussed your dislike for this episode and the reasons why. But is there anything worth bringing up in the long game for the actual long game? I mean, I'm still going to harp on the fact that we never see Jesse again, uh, just because to me it is absolutely unbelievable. Like, the storyline has so much potential, and it's made into a bottle episode. Like, I would have really liked to see it much more developed to learn a lot more about it. And the good news is that I know for a fact that Andrew Dabb agreed with me, and that's where I'm going to leave it. Okay, good to know. We do find out some interesting lore in this episode that we need to remember for way later down the road. I'll be intrigued. My only guess is the whole how antichrists are made thing. This is our first mention of the Tooth Fairy. Oh god, first? Yeah, first. Okay. 
There's also a quick mention that this could be a trickster, which I found interesting. So I had a thought in this, especially the fact they were in a hospital when they said it. The trickster is starting to feel like the lupus answer on house. (laughs) Is it lupus? Is it lupus? It's going to become such a thing that it's never a trickster or it's never the trickster whenever it feels like a trickstery episode, but they will always go to it as a like, maybe. But then eventually it will be done so much that they'll have to reverse it by actually being the trickster just to remind us that he's still there. We haven't seen him in a while. Demons and humans can make babies together, and I would suggest not to think too much about the mechanisms of that, especially in this particular instance, just because no matter how you think about it, it's pretty awful. Yeah, no, I mean, I will personally just, in the comedic headcanon way, assume there's some really, like, logical, scientific way to do it. Like, the demon, like, knocked her out, and, like, you're right, even then, (laughs) no, never. And that is exactly my point, listeners. Do not think about it too much, even though Drew tried. (laughs) I was like, I can logic my way out of this into some, like, real bullshit way. No, it's awful, no matter how you do it. Fuck it. Uh, Basically, children that are half-demon, half-human are, quote-unquote, far more powerful than either and are known as Antichrist. And Cass specifically explains that the Antichrist isn't Lucifer's child, per se, but, like, general demon spawn. So there we go, a bit of, like, internal lore crafting i will also say that i like uh cass's other point in this uh conversation which is the bible gets more things wrong than it does right it's a good look it's a it's a funny line i'll be honest but it also kind of sets the precedent of like yes we vaguely follow christian mythology but we don't have to follow it to a t because we are writing our own mythology based off christian mythology right and the whole idea is also that like angels literally predate the bible yeah so they would know better Uh, So the last thing that I'll add in the long game is that Jesse, the Antichrist, as we've talked about, really likes the idea of a world without lies. With that, shall we go to story time where I can know things? Yes. So today our theme is misconception. And the word comes from miss and conception. Uh, You know what? It's worth saying because there are very few select words. I can't think of it off my head where they have what you would assume is a suffix or a prefix, but don't actually have one. So the prefix miss, bad, and the word conception comes from Latin concipere, uh, which means to take in, to become pregnant, or to grasp. The word conception refers to both ideas and pregnancy. So in this case, misconception is going to be about a bad grasp of an idea, or like a misunderstanding, basically. You know, and this isn't something that I thought about necessarily when, you know, I proposed this theme to the group chat, but it does touch upon the concept of pregnancy as well, which is on theme with this um, episode. There was a moment where you said like, and for this episode, the subject will be misconception, which, uh, I, I mean, it works though. And I was like, why is that like a bad choice? Like it works, but like you don't want to use it. And now I'm putting the dots together. So, who are we starting with this week? I think we should start with Cass. What do you think? Yay. So, I think that Cass's misconception is that they have to kill Jesse. And this is an obvious one, and that's why we're starting with Cass, because there's a lot more stuff to discuss uh, with the brothers this week. So, this is literally the kind of thinking that Sam was doing last season. You know, the ends justifying the means. And in this case, the means are literally killing a nine-year-old boy. 
But I also want to highlight that you had predicted that Dean would be stuck between Sam and Cass, so I guess we're seeing it right now? A little bit. You know, there was that moment where, like, Sam was like, wait a second, hold on. Like, you could tell that Dean was, like, kind of listening to Cass, but then also, like, not feeling great about it. Like, there was definitely a little tug tug of war there. So I realized that um, while misconception means a little something different for all of our uh, characters this uh, this episode... There's a very common thread we'll get to, and when we get to the end, I'll, I'll be a little more obvious, but it, it feels a bit out of place in Cass this episode, because we know him so well. We also know what he used to be like. I mean, more from story, we know more of the angels as a whole, and he's learning. I mean, he literally went against God and is doing his own thing now against the wishes of angels and basically going on his own. He's learning to be his own person and do things his way. And try to get away from his old way, the whole, if there's a problem, just kill it way, which seems to be what angels did up until now. You know, it's all still really early, and it's scary, and not just, this isn't just someone threatening to kill all the angels, this is someone threatening to kill the vessel, as he put it, very clearly referencing Dean, but they don't actually address it in the episode. Or like trying to, um, I guess, getting lost a little bit in like the way that Dean has taught him to be. I would feel it is a normal reaction when you are kind of put in a corner, you're kind of pressured, the ways, the the parts of you that are more instinctual come out, and when you are raised in a certain way, there are parts of you that come up more instinctually than others. You know, uh, to put a really simple example on it, let's say you are, a, a personal example, I, for years, worked at summer camps. Something you can't do around kids is swear. But... When you are really put in a rough spot or something completely out of the blue or things that are just so completely against the norm that you revert to your truest form, you'd slip up once in a while. I mean, I wasn't murdering nine-year-olds, but, you know, the occasional swear word came out when I got stung by a bee or one of the kids, like, you know, fell and I had to run after them and catch them before they fell off like a mountain. Yeah, okay. I'm interested to see like where where you're going with this, I have to say. Oh, okay. I I, I like that I kind of got you on my train. Then shall we move to Sam and continue a little bit? I think that Sam's is the most interesting misconception. Because last episode, Sam and Dean just talked about how they need to be equals in their hunting relationship. And here, Sam is very strongly advocating to tell Jesse the truth. Dean ignores him. And I guess, like, he tries to find, like I said, like, I think he tries to find some sort of middle ground between Sam and Cass's ideas, which is really hard when one of them is like, kill the boy. Like, there, it's not really, there's no halfway to that, right? And Sam does what he said he wouldn't do anymore, and he goes along with it. Like, he didn't trust himself enough to stop Dean and be like, actually, no, here's the deal. Like, we both were incredibly mad at our tallest bean last season for lying to a preteen boy and here like he really wants to not have to do it again but he lets dean go ahead with his own strategy and i think it shows like how little sam actually trusts himself and how hard this pattern is to break like despite everybody's best intentions so i think you are almost landing on the points i'm trying to make and i'll hopefully at the end tie everything together and you'll understand what i'm going at here but you know, Sam has set up boundaries. He has defined last week what he needs for this relationship to work the way it needs to work to be different and be able for them to both move on. Much like Cass, despite the fact that he's realized the old ways don't work, I need to try something new. 
when push comes to shove and you kind of need to fall into a comfort zone to get through what needs to come next, you kind of revert to your old ways. So while Sam, at least this time, is able to vocalize what he wants to do, you know, as opposed to last week where he waited till literally they were leaving town, despite the fact that he has said to himself, I'm going to stand up and do what I need to do and I think Dean's wrong and we're going to do this, he ultimately reverts back to the old ways and follows Dean and does Dean's plan. And even when Dean begins to lie to this poor kid, rather than try to argue with him or fight it or try something different, he just goes along with it. So is that really then a misconception? So what is the misconception here that we revert to that? I think the misconception here, and to reveal my hand a little early, is that they believe that they have moved on. They believe they have crossed this barrier. Sam truly believes they are now equals and will act that way. But when push comes to shove, when he is put into a corner, when he is, you know in a moment of doubt and has to go, do I trust in myself or do I trust in Dean? He leans to the way he used to do it and just let Dean's plan be the priority. Maybe the misconception is that change is total and like black and white. I had a whole reveal plan with Dean, but we'll get to it. Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) The misconception that all three of them have is that because they have decided to make a change, the change is made versus the reality, which is, You've decided to make a change, you now need to work towards it. I mean, to put a really, like, fine example on it, it's one thing to say, I'm quitting blank, uh, smoking, drinking, whatever it is. You can stop cold turkey, but it's still in you. There's still a part of you. There's still the mental aspect. There's still the figuring things out. The, how do I get by with this? It's not just an instant light switch moment. And you might feel like it is because I stopped drinking. I haven't had a drink in an hour. I'm, I'm cured. You know, you have that shitty day. Something goes wrong. I, I mean, I'm not, a, again, I'm, I'm equating to addiction here just because it's an easy example. But like with anything, you say one thing, it doesn't mean it's so. It actually requires the work. So the misconception for me here with all three of them was they thought they were through the woods and they had only passed one tree. Maybe I think a better, like a more representative thing might be like, I will work out every day for one hour (laughs) like something where you're like okay just because you've said it like now you actually need to to put it into place I think this sort of makes sense that they would all three of them believe that because they all have very authoritarian fathers um, who are basically their only parental figures right like I mean we've never heard of a mother figure for Cass and the Angels. It's all, it's our father, period. And then we know that the boys grew up without Mary. And that's why I said authoritarian father. But I guess when you have authoritarian parents, you know, this idea that like, I said so, and therefore that's the way it is. It's going to fuck you up in many ways. To even go a step further in all of these cases, and again, we'll get to Dean shortly, the status quo they return to in a moment of panic or in a moment of fear is the authoritarian way of the father. You know, Cass's choice to, I guess it's time to kill this child, isn't a Cass choice. It's a choice that would have been forced upon him as an angel and he would have just not questioned it. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's also the whole thing, right? Like Sam reverts to a choice that he would have had to make in order to survive you know, his childhood. Dean lies, right? We'll get to it in a second, but like he refers 
reverts to something that he would have done in order to survive in his childhood. Well, let's go to Dean right now then, I think. I think we're in a good spot for that. All right, that works. So, I mean, yes, that's it's he lies. Uh, the misconception here is that he can get Jesse to do what he wants by lying uh, and making him feel special. Uh, you know, like the whole, you're a superhero, uh, you're going to go see someone who's like Professor X. Like this might have worked on Dean, but it doesn't work on Jesse. And there's like the added layer of him not trusting Sam when Sam was actually the one who wanted to do the right thing. I think it comes, you know, like we've been saying, I think it comes back to this idea of how deeply entrenched the pattern actually is. There we are. I mean, this was my three for three moment of all three of them. While the misconceptions weren't exactly aligned, it really all comes down to they fall back onto the things that they shouldn't be falling back on. They are going back to the ways they're trying to get away from. You know, I, I didn't even think about it until right now. I really like it just hit me when you said it for some reason. But the idea of lying to Jesse to get what they want is, I mean, almost what John did to Dean of telling Dean, you need to protect Sam, you need to be his hero, you need to be his protector. I mean, I don't think it was so much a lie in that moment, but it was telling them what they needed to hear to get the result they wanted. The way that I saw it when I said it was more about like how Dean probably lied to John a heck of a lot in order to get by, or how Dean lied to teachers, to other adults in his life in order to to survive, to make sure that like he wouldn't get you know, uh, that his family wouldn't get broken up, right? Yeah, no, that makes sense too. It goes both ways. Damn. Oh, hey, Dean. Now, the other thing that showed up for Dean for me was the last line of the episode, which is the more I think about it, the more I wish dad had lied to us too. And this is just such a stark contrast with what he was telling Sam in earlier seasons. And like, it's also the continuation of his whole, like, dad didn't have a choice with us, but with Adam, he let him grow up normal. So I feel like we're seeing Dean, like, starting to realize just how fucked up his childhood was. And he's like starting to realize that John wasn't who he thought he was. The realization about John, I think, has already started a while ago. But I think it was very surface level, and now he sort of started digging into the nitty gritty of like very personal, like not so much. Like I think if you asked either Sam or Dean in this moment, was John a bad dad? The answer would have been yes. But I don't think it was until this moment that really we start seeing, especially on Dean's side, how much John hurt him specifically. I I agree. I think that Dean is starting to be more casually vocal about it, which. Um... You know, before, whenever he would talk about John, it would be like really emotional, like it would be really, like it would be really hard to, for him to say the words, right? And we know that Dean has issues with speaking uh, when he gets emotional, whereas now it's starting to be a little bit more like the, the tightness in his chest, and I'm using this more as like a visual, but like it's starting to ease up a bit, like he's able to say words about his father that aren't only complimentary, so it's it's like we're starting to see him be a bit more casually critical of John, which is a huge step for him, in my opinion, even though like this process has been ongoing for quite a few seasons and we've been talking about it quite a bit. Like this, to me, represents a milestone. No, I agree wholeheartedly. This really feels like the first major turn for Dean since 
we've started to see the like understanding that John was a bad father. Like we've seen it, we've been very vocal about it, but we're start, we start to see it in the way that he reacts to. I'm trying to think what the first like big moment was with them. I'm sure there's so many I can pick out, and I'm sure I'm not picking out the earliest one. But it's in the dolls episode, or like right the the doll and the the lady who I can't remember the title of it. It's like The Shining. Oh yeah, when they're in the hotels with drunk Sam and uh, yes, with drunk Sam and Dean is like, Dad shouldn't have done that, you know. Uh, I think a lot of the flashback episodes do it very well justice, but this is the first time it, like you said, Dean is really able to like, it, like turn it from a you statement of like, oh, you, John, were a bastard to I, Dean, was hurt by John. It's, it becomes self-reflective. Something Dean is not really good at, and now two episodes in a row has seems to be a lot better at it. Is he not good at it, or is he just not allowed to express it until now? I, little column A, little column B, I feel like there's times where he could have been more receptive to it or better at it. But also, I feel like a lot of times it is just the way that Sam confronted him about it, that he didn't give him the room to do so. Because Dean takes time, right, to get to those things. Just because, like, his thought process takes a bit more time and introspection, like, that is literally self-reflection. So I, I'm going to get a little a little defensive of Dean here. <laughs> Not because I see myself in him at all. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, are we ready to move on to critical time? Let's. So who was behind this episode? I'm guessing one of the names based on previous conversation, but. Well, would you guess that this episode was written by Andrew Dabb and Daniel Laughlin? Yeah, I think we discussed in the past that they have a tendency to be a little um, uncouth in some ways. That really deep exploration of the boys' childhood, it, it, entirely almost in the subtext, is very, very Dab and Laughlin. Yes, I agree with you. And our director? Charles Beeson. A comforting name. I feel like we hear it enough, and I've, I feel like Charles Beeson's one of those names that's come up frequently enough that I've like lost track of the episodes they've done, that they've sort of just become a very like neutral like name to me. Like It's just like... It doesn't, it doesn't inspire me to be like, oh, a Beeson episode, but I'm also not like, ugh, him again. <laughs> ugh, a Beeson episode. <laughs> Does anybody live in the Hunter's Journal? Oh, oh, we do have a good one this week. I'm excited for this one. I've been at this game a long time. Yeah, I've hunted with other great hunters. I've seen the rise and fall of apocalypse-level nightmare scenarios. It was almost mundane if the thing I was hunting didn't have some giant nasty plot to end all life or, I don't know, devour the sun or something crazy like that. I faced specters of the worst parts of humanity. You know, I nearly put werewolves extinct. I once hunted and killed the oldest vampire on record. It bears mentioning that when I tell you that I was dumbfounded, absolutely at a loss for words this evening, it carries some weight. I did not think twice about weird noises and smells from a house, you know, objects disappearing, um, some oddly colorful splashes of what we and the homeowners assumed were saliva or maybe a other secretion, but uh, I'll let you know they were wrong. Plain as day. For this entry, in this journal, I write to you, sitting under the shade of a tree, watching the culprit scurry around the yard, in and out of small cracks in the home's foundation, 
its puffy white cotton tail and adorable floppy ears, stopping once in a while, like a little statue, only to hop away, revealing an egg. It would then take it inside, and return moments later to hide the now-painted egg. The Easter Bunny. As I live and breathe, it's right in front of me. It's actually given me quite a few eggs of my own. And I must say, some of the best chocolate I've ever had. Hmm. <laughs> I just, I don't know, something about this week's episode inspired me to be like, what is the weirdest thing a hunter could come across? What is the absolute weirdest mythological creature, whether it has roots in actual mythology or not? I love that they mentioned the tooth fairy in the episode and you went for the Easter bunny. Honestly, conversation with the wife and I was asking, what is the weirdest, like, if you were to walk into the woods right now and see a mythical creature of your choice, what is the one that would make you go like, huh? Because, like, there's some out there, like, I feel like I could write this about Bigfoot and you'd have a good laugh, but, like, Bigfoot's still, like, a six-foot, eight-foot-tall, like, beast. Uh, you know, Loch Ness Monster. It kind of fun and I would consider adorable, but it's still a giant sea serpent, a possible dinosaur. But the Easter Bunny? That one just, uh... What would you do? I mean, I hope that they're nice and that they give me chocolate. That, that's what this one did. <laughs> so I like that. This hunter has faced many things. Even the Easter Bunny. And what do you have for us this week? But I have to come back to the reason why I dislike this episode so much. You know, it, it, leaving aside the forced pregnancy, because that is just abhorrent to me. I just think that the Antichrist story has so much potential. It would just make a really great arc for an entire season or even two. And like, I just don't really get why they tried to fit it into a single episode. And on top of that, like I told you before, like Jesse never comes back. And I just don't really get what it is that this episode brings to the season that made it so necessary for this particular story to be told in one episode. You know, like they make such a big deal about how powerful he is and they make a really big deal at hinting that he's not the only one out there. And for what? Like, like my thought process finishing this episode and wondering what was going to happen, I really expected, like I fully, my first thought was, oh, they're going to bring him to Bobby. They'll put him on the sideline for a little bit. They'll have some confrontation with him and he'll become like a, I don't want to think a main character, but he become like a recurring character for a little bit and they deal with this a bit. And like, I could see a lot of childhood trauma coming up and having to like deal with it. It would be a great development point for the, for the brothers. And heck, he could cure Bobby and make him walk again and like just show how powerful he is. And like to find out that he is not coming back, like... I'm happy to know. I would I would hate thinking that like he can be around any corner. But like what a bummer. What a great concept. What a great I genuinely have so many questions now. Like, are we gonna get other antichrists? Are they as common as they could be? Are like there's so many like open-ended things that don't feel good. It doesn't feel like, oh, we revealed a new lore. It's like, no, no, you just spat out something really cool and then went, nah. Exactly. Like, it just feels, it feels awkward to me. Anyway, with that, do we want to go listen to what our community has to say? I would love that. 
This week, we have a message from Kate. And before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discuss today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Drew and I will be answering the question, do you think half-angel and half-human children exist? For our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk. Hi, y'all. I'm calling in after listening to 4x6 Yellow Fever, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the meaning of the title. I wanted to lean into Drew's idea of yellow and the connection to fear by telling you how I've always viewed the episode. I'm coming into this through the lens of U.S. history, media coverage, and fear-mongering. The connection that I always saw with this episode was to the idea of something called yellow journalism, which is a style of media coverage that began at the end of the 19th century that is categorized by reporting sensationalism over facts or fear over facts. This was a collective effort of the news companies at this time who were trying to get people to buy their newspapers by reporting falsehoods with catchy titles. Basically, yes, this was the origin of clickbait, but instead of headlines online, you had newsboys running through the streets shouting extra, extra, read all about it. Only what you were reading about was usually lies. They would take one small grain of truth and blow it wildly out of proportion to get their readers, who at this time were those who were who were literate and could afford to buy the news, aka wealthy white men, to buy their paper over their competitors' papers. This was super problematic because not only did this establish the precedent of inaccurate news reporting, but often the information that was reported was racist, sexist, xenophobic, etc. Yellow journalism began during the Spanish-American War when the government was trying to get the American audience to hate Spain and support the war. It began in the post-Civil War era when Black Americans were trying to gain equality but were inhibited by systemic racism. And it began when all of the U.S. had isolationist policies and were incredibly anti-immigration and most foreigners. Yellow journalism was used to drum up fear in the American population and has since continued to be used in this way. Examples like the Yellow Peril, the Red Scare, and the Lavender Scare wherein media was used as a tool by the government to make Americans fear Asian immigrants, communist, and the gay community, respectively. So to connect it all back to the episode, I always looked at the title Yellow Fever as the ghost sickness appealing to Dean's base fears through small, insignificant representations of them that were not actually worth worrying about, just like how news coverage from the late 1800s through today appeals to people's base concerns and fears by constructing false narratives and connections between events that aren't really related or that make things out to be much more serious than they actually are. So the ghost sickness caused Dean's brain to connect his base fear of flying to him being scared of all heights, his base fear of hellhounds extrapolated to mean all dogs, and even his base fear of not fitting in with normal society to being scared of teenagers who are the perfect example of being judged and not fitting in. Do I think this read is what the writers are going for? Probably not. But I do think this lens helps me remember how important it is to know that connecting things that are only loosely related can lead to blowing stuff wildly out of proportion, which is harmful for everyone involved. Thanks for letting me chime in and for all the work your team puts into this podcast. I didn't know how deep that really went and to hear the history of the idea of like the yellow scare or like the these tactics, like it makes so much sense. It feels like it's always been there. Like it's like one of those things you're describing the way the newspapers used to work. And it's like so obvious, but also kind of the way the world works today, unfortunately, in a lot of ways with media and to see that connection and to go even further and actually connect it to Dean's existing fears. was just like really well thought out. And while 
I hate to agree that also it's probably not what they intended and were, I don't want to say giving credit, but like, you know, they probably had the worst intention and were giving the best intention to the thought. I love this so much. So I think if we really go back to this episode and like, remember that this is the episode where Eric Kripke literally had to make a statement about the fact that they weren't saying that Dean is a dick. This episode was written by Andrew Dabb and Daniel Laughlin. I feel like maybe this episode truly is misunderstood. And I'm not faulting the fandom for misunderstanding it. Maybe it just wasn't communicated properly. Maybe the themes just (laughs) were just a little too nebulous for the audience to really get. I'm not sure uh, how, how, how else to say it. I will maintain that I really ha- wish that they had chosen any other origin in terms of finding like the myth, the, the lore. And, you know, I wouldn't have made that connection that, you know, uh, to quote Kate, blew things out of proportion. I will also say that like, this is a lens through which I really like to see this episode because again, like I was really just searching for what it could mean and I just didn't have that lens available to me, right? So I saw it through the lens that I did have available to me, which is that Supernatural is outrageously racist sometimes. And so like that was my reach. If I had to go back and watch the episode today, I think I would probably analyze it differently thanks to Kate. So I definitely appreciate that. Yeah, there you go. I think that this is a really interesting discussion to be had here about like authorial intention versus audience identification. I hate to be the kind of like, you know, the character from last week, the uh, the share who's just like the easiest answer is usually the right answer. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the show has a track record. And if we follow the track record, the first reading from you is the most likely one. Although I like you, I prefer these other readings a lot better. I don't know if that's the most likely one, but it is the one that was available to me at the time. So I just really want to thank Kate for giving us, giving me like extra tools through which to, to analyze this episode. Well, now that we've reflected on that episode, shall we go reflect on this episode? Yes. So there's this thing on TikTok where people ask things like, what's the one thing that happened in your house growing up that you thought was completely normal, but then realized it wasn't? The end of this episode really had those vibes for me. So I think that I'm feeling called to continue my journey of healing my inner child and my inner teen. And it's not easy, but she deserves it. And there you go. Simple to the point. I love that TikTok trend. When they're positive, I've heard some negative ones, but I like the fun ones. Good. Good. Thank you. What about you? I'm getting a double reflection this week because I'm combining something in this episode along with a little bit of myself. And uh, this is a combination of Dean's um, fantastical version of the story he tells Jesse. The, yep, you're going to be an X-Men now. And just how much fun I've been having writing, especially this week, getting to go a little bit like crazy with the Hunter's Journal in my own way and doing something a little different from usual. And it's reminded me that like I really like writing and I'm not going to lie, I think I'm pretty okay at it. My call to action is a very specific one this week, and that is to write more. And very specifically, I feel like I'm in a place right now where, without getting too into it, nothing's wrong, it's just a busy time of the year. Right now is not the right time to be doing this, but uh, I think uh, this year in November when NaNoWriMo comes around, I'm going to participate again. 
we're recording this at the end of August for transparency, but I just got the syllabus for one of my courses and I have a 20 page paper to hand in on December 6th. So I, the minute you said that, I was like, oh, maybe I can also uh, <laughs> participate. Double duty. Yeah, there you go. It won't be I'm fiction, writing. but you know, there you go. Writing is writing. Yeah, writing is writing. That's for sure. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, Michelle, and Elle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Kate for their message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at Carrying Wayward, and leave us a rating and review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Would you like to get us started? Sure, I can get us started.